This is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. Welcome to the show. My name is Braden Dennis. As always, joined by the capitalist, Simon Belanger, with your two picks today. Just, just capitalism <laughs> written all over you. Simon, this is going to be a fire episode because we're basically doing a fa- a favorite segment of the listeners of the podcast, which is stocks on our watch list. But we're doing two each and we're making an entire episode about it of companies we're looking at that are in our watch list for one reason or another. Uh, there, there could be a variety of reasons why it makes it into our watch list. And I think it's helpful for us to kind of work through our thoughts live on the show so listeners can can see what we're doing. So this is four stocks we like for 2024, aka stocks on our watch list presented by EQ Bank, but this time on steroids. So that's that's the setup for today's show. That's it, yeah. And I mean, classic Simon gets carried away with doing a bit too many notes, but that's okay. It looks more intense. You're just diligent. <laughs> that's all. <laughs> yeah. It more it looks uh, bigger than uh, people would like if they saw my notes. It's because I do have a lot of graphs that I'll be sharing with our joint TCI listeners just to provide some context. So it does look a bit more intense than that, but I think it'll be fun. So the first one, let's get started. I'm sure we'll we'll be chatting back and forth. So for me, it's uh, Canadian Pacific Kansas City Southern Railway. I will refer to them as CP as much as I can because that's uh, unfortunately it's quite the mouthful if you do uh, do the whole thing. So for those who are not familiar with them, I mean, CP is just a railway. It's one of two railways in Canada. So we have Canadian National Rail and CP. So CP goes from east to west, and they also cut through kind of the Midwest in the U.S. and then goes all the way to Mexico. And that's what makes it a really interesting play, in my opinion. Now, a quick recent history recap. In late March 2021, CP announced that it had agreed to acquire Kansas City Southern for approximately $29 billion. In December of 2021, the transaction closed in air quotes. I'm saying that in air quotes because it was put in a trust, in a voting trust until the U.S. regulator, so the U.S. Surface Transportation Board, or the STB, gave its approval. On March 15, 2023, the SCB provided its approval with some uh, some small conditions attached to that, but generally approved like most of the transaction. Both companies were officially combined effective April 14, 2023. Now, I think the biggest attraction, at least for me, for CP is the competitive advantage that it has in its moat. So railways... On their own, at least in North America, they're very... Is that a word, Modi? Like Modi? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. definitely. Modi. Yeah. Okay, so, I like it. Yeah, so they they tend to have very good modes. So it would be the reason behind that, and we've talked about this before, it would be really difficult to build a new railway because of just a regulatory approval, especially a railway that goes uh, through three countries like CP does, Canada, US, and Mexico. Just building a new one would be incredibly difficult. Think about the all the provinces that would be involved and then the states in the US. And for a railway that spans multiple countries, yeah, it really gives them an extra competitive advantage. And the cost of building a new railway is also very prohibitive. I don't know how much it would cost, but 
I can say for sure that it would cost tens of billions of dollars, if not in the hundreds of billions, to build these railways, get all the locomotive, the cars, everything involved behind that. To me, I mean, it must be at least, wouldn't cost at least a hundred billion to do that, right? It's the capex outlays. Yeah, it's it's absurd. <laughs> it's in it's it's the number whatever it is. It's in the billions. It you know what it is? It's what I call like the the smart Stanford kid test. Okay, so Stan Stanford as a university, like the computer science graduates coming out of there, they either go on to build on great things or drop out to go build great things. Right? Like that's that's the that's the cliche. And no smart Stanford kid is raising money for anything like this. <laughs> like there's no incentive from capital allocators like VC or the entrepreneurs that are trying to bill it. So it passes the durability and the moat of the, the Stanford smart kid test because there's no pitch deck flying around uh, Silicon Valley or <laughs> young smart movers and shakers who are beginning their career on raising $100 billion to build another like another major railway there's just no uh no appetite and no incentive no exactly and if people also want to compare like why would it be so hard just think about pipelines how difficult it is to build pipelines and there's still a need for them and the regulatory approval to a lot of people being opposed against it clearly railroads would have some issues of their own i mean some of them transport well most of them transport chemicals they transport oil uh there can be spills or can be accidents uh you're also disrupting wildlife when you're you're building that so there are definitely some environmental issues that would be created with building some new ones and how difficult it would be and for our joint tci listeners you'll see two charts here so the first one is just uh the the network of Kansas City, well, CP in Kansas City Southern, so CP, so we see that it's quite extensive. And then the second one, I mean, we all see they're all different kind of lines. You don't have to worry too much about all the different colors. It just goes to show that a different color is a different uh, railway network. And that's why it's so, it's such a competitive advantage here for CP compared to the other railroads because most of them are kind of more regionally located. So they don't even do all of the U.S. They're either more out east, more Midwest, more out west. Very essentially, there's CP and I think pretty much Canadian National Rail that has such an extensive uh, network and Canadian National Rail goes from east to west to Canada and then all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. So I think that's just a good example and gives people an idea of why it's so important. And it really allows them to have a competitive advantage over other railways who have more limited networks, like I just mentioned. It reduces the amount of interchange required, which is simply changing from one railroad network to another and the additional time that is required to do this. This would this should allow them to have some more pricing power over time, especially if they provide some substantial time savings to their customers, because obviously time is money. And even if you were to remove that, there are only seven class one railroads in North America. A class one railroad is essentially one that generates at least a billion dollars in revenue. There are some smaller ones, but they're very, very local and uh, quite small. So there's class two and class three as well. And obviously railroads are 
oligopolies and you can even make a case that in some instances if you zoom in a bit more on some geographies they're either monopolies or duopolies obviously duopolies i'm thinking here of cp and cnr if we're thinking of just canada alone and i'm especially bullish on cp because of the change we've seen over the last several years uh geopolitically and i'll elaborate a little bit on that because i think that's one of the biggest tailwinds for a cp or even cnr is I'm thinking here more specifically with relations between the West, obviously led by the U.S. and China, but especially under Trump, where it all started, the U.S. started imposing tariffs on a slew of goods produced in China, which has continued under the Biden administration. And for the most part, Chinese companies have been able to continue to operate and absorb that the cost of these higher tariffs in their margins. But at some point, I mean, if tariffs keeps increasing, it could really make it difficult for them to trade with the U.S. And recently, Trump said that he would impose tariffs of 60 60% or more on Chinese goods. Did you hear that? Did you see that? No. I I have not seen that, but I know that regardless of who is, you know, in the the protest position, there is a giant push for friendshoring. Yeah. Whether that is, you know, doing that locally in the US or moving supply chains to friendly or type nations for for this but so i i see that as a long-term trend to continue overall yeah capitalism is like water where it you know flows to best product <laughs> at the best price which overrules everything but if those if these you know tariffs or whatever would be put in place does change the unit economics you know then then capitalism follows right like best price best product always wins no matter what and so we'll see but i'm just dude i've I've just been while you're talking, looking at this map of the rails for each by yeah. each color. So you got like yeah. BNSF, which is a Berkshire Hathaway company. Yeah, Union Pacific, CN Rail, CP Rail, Norfolk, Casey Southern, Ferromex, which I guess is the the Mexican uh, rail and CSX. And I've just been like <laughs> enthralled by this map. It's it's really quite cool. Like you can you can kind of feast your eyes on it for a long time to kind of map out which which rail is servicing which area, which ones have like a bunch of localized monopoly, like BNSF and Union Pacific basically own the, all of the Western United States and uh, into the Midwest. It's, it's kind of crazy. Yeah. No, I know. It's, it's kind of fascinating to look at. And I mean, one thing too, to add on to the whole like uh, China question is I was listening to an interview with someone really connected to the US, uh, US politics, and they were saying, Democrats and Republican don't agree on much, but they agree on China. And putting mm -hmm. uh, being tough on China, I think the only disagreement is how tough they are on China. It's basically that's where they disagree. And whether Trump obviously says a lot of stuff, if, whether he comes into power, and that's true if they increase the tariffs, like you were saying. It's going to force companies to friendshore or nearshore. So nearshoring would be closer to home. Friendshoring would be moving to places like Vietnam, India, these other countries that are friendlier to the U.S. And uh, especially if they're moving operations to Mexico, clearly that would be a big benefit to a company like CP, which has the railways that goes all the way there. Just to add something, for me the kind of number one driver kind of underpinning all of this is semis. 
Semis yeah. is kind of the one thing where we can all agree on underpinning everything in this whole motivation. If you're really to look into it, it's semis. Like the concentration risk with with Taiwan and and and, and the relations with China. That's to me seem. I don't know if I'm off base there, but to me it seems to really underpin the entire effort with what they're doing with the with with. <laughs> Hoping Intel becomes great again, and uh, you know Arizona Arizona plant with TSMC. Yeah, and I, well, I think there's also manufacturing components, even aside from semis, which has a lot of obviously national security implications. That's right. I think for the voting base, so without going into too much in politics in the U.S., obviously we know that the U.S. election is decided by a handful of swing states, right? We everyone knows Texas is going to be Republican, California is going to be Democrat, New York is going to be Democrat, and then you have that these like six, seven states that essentially decide the election. It's and the in swing those states. states, exactly like a Pennsylvania, over the years they've been really affected with a lot of the manufacturing going overseas. So it's actually good politics to try and be hard on China. I'm just fascinated by the whole thing. Where I'm not trying to say like you know you know, get into like, you know, partisanship or anything, regardless of the partisan, there seems to be a willingness to keep at least being tough on China. And that's why I think it's going to be a tailwind for these kind of businesses. Now, one thing that's kind of nice, and I was looking through their information, their investor presentations that were done recently, is they are guiding for high single-digit revenue growth between 2024 and 2028. That's really interesting because at that point, you know, there's no longer going to be base effects before the acquisition of Kansas City Southern. So the fact that they're uh, guiding for high single-digit revenue growth uh, between 2024 and 2028 per year, which is... That's pretty impressive for a more mature company. And they do pay a small dividend, currently yield 0.66%. Has not increased for some time now, which actually is a big plus for me since it will allow them to focus some of that money paying down debt. Now, it's not a perfect company. The concerns and the reason I don't own it right now is just that it's trading at a pretty high multiple. 63, um, the price to free cash flow is 63 and a 26 P. So the, the P is not that high, but it's definitely still on the higher end historically. It could be that 2023 was a bit of a down year, not only for them, but also for Canadian National Rail, just because of macroeconomic headwinds. So it could be that obviously the E was a bit lower and the price is still relatively high so it's making the the p to seem a bit higher so there might be some room to grow there and the debt the long-term debt jumped from 8.4 billion to 19.3 billion following the kansas city southern acquisition so that is definitely a point of concern they are doing some improvement in that regards in terms of the coverage ratio so one of the most common metrics, at least the ones I looked at, is the EBITDA compared to the interest expense. So obviously, the higher, the better here when it comes to that. So it it was it dipped pretty low at the end of 2022, but now it's trending back up, which is nice to see. And that's something you will want to keep an eye on to make sure that they're not getting over their head in terms of interest payments, because it could have a pretty, you know, pretty bad impact on the business if that doesn't get under control. It's not out of control or anything like that for the time being. And then the last thing would be the uh, free cash flow. So free cash flow per share has declined since uh, the acquisition. 
Now that's a mix of issuing shares for the acquisition and some macroeconomic headwinds in the last two years. So I do anticipate this will get better over time. But overall, I mean, my plan, my end game is to have equally weighted CP and Canadian National Rail and just kind of set it and forget it. That's the kind of company I'm good with. Uh, I would hold with for 10 years and, you know, look back 10 years afterwards and, uh, you know, basically the desert island uh, trick. I would pick those two. The infrastructure that's in the ground has been in there for, you know, in some places, uh, you know, hundreds of years or, or a, a hundred years and will be for another few hundred years. You know, it's 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 almost so Lindy that like, you know, the terminal risk is like the heat death of the universe. Like that's that's how Lindy some of these businesses are. I think for me, you kind of touched on it. the issue that everyone knows that they're amazing businesses, right? That everyone knows that, right? Like yeah, every yeah. single one, every single investor knows they're incredible businesses. And they've continued to surprise to the upside. Uh, if you look at, you know, tra trailing decades of performance against the index, it's been fantastic. You know, multi-decade performance. I think, you know, at today's price, you're just getting something priced like a stock that has a lot of runway with very little runway and something that trades uh, or, or its growth is so dependent on macro forces. So you're, you're getting like the, the, the price of something that has its extreme upside with, uh, you know, something that's mature like a railway because the business is so good. So you're yeah. paying, paying up, 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 up for quality. And I don't think that that's such a bad thing. So I don't have such a, I don't know. I don't, I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. It's just really hard to underwrite good returns. Like mm -hmm. it's, it's difficult to underwrite yeah. good returns on this. And they do have times where they become more attractive valuation-wise. So that's why I made a point to say, like, that's the one thing that's kind of stopping me right now is the valuation. And, you know, if histories repeat or at least rhymes, there will be a point where the valuation will get more attractive. So that's um, that's that's when I'll, I'll definitely start my position in them. I'm just charting out here on FinChat uh, for the joint TCI listeners. Uh, the PE ratios trailing on CN and CP. And there have been a few times you've seen big divergences. 2014, 2015, you saw a big divergence. And they've traded very similar on multiples up until very recently. They're seeing a pretty severe divergence in how investors are valuing these two companies as of today. Uh, with like 27 times trailing earnings for CP and 20 times for for CN. So something to consider there. I mean, investors certainly are a little bit more optimistic about uh, CP's future right now. Yeah, yeah, they love that acquisition. But uh, now we'll move on to uh, something that moves or so, uh, something. Yeah, I guess so. It also moves, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Transportation kind of ish. But this is not a transportation. This no, is yeah. a car stock. And I'm talking about Porsche, uh, not Porsche. Uh, my dad would be so upset with me if I came on the podcast and called it Porsche instead of Porsche. Yeah. So here we go. I'm gonna I'm gonna say the right name all all this segment. So Porsche, the ticker is P911 for the the 911 car. So P911. That's a pretty awesome ticker if you are familiar with the cars. It's on the German exchange. I think there's a US ADR. I'd have to check. 
The official company name you'll look up is Dr. Ing HCF Porsche AG, <laughs> which is the full title of the founder Ferdinand Porsche, which basically means Doctor of Engineering Ferdinand Porsche. So the, the company name is like what you'd see at the bottom of an email. Uh, it's kind of strange, but that's what it is. Now, if you know me, Simon, an automaker would be the last type of company to end up on my watch list. And I certainly have many hesitations I'm going to talk about. But two things sparked my interest. One, international stocks and emerging names are incredibly cheap right now uh, compared to the US and maybe an interesting hunt to ground. And two, I've been looking more into luxury stocks and particularly Ferrari. Um, They're an automaker, but they're really actually a luxury business. And so I was like, is there anything else that's interesting? Because Ferrari is like one of the most expensive large cap stocks I can possibly find right now. And so I, I thought to myself, is is Porsche luxury and the stock is compre- uh, cheap or is it a traditional automaker that traps value investors for the last hundred years? And so does it deserve to trade at, 20, at seven times 2024 earnings is like kind of the question that I'm trying to figure out. And this is always the start of an interesting conversation. So let's work through it together here on the pod. And maybe as I work through these thoughts, I'll have a more concrete opinion. Let's start with the bad news. Let's start with the bad news first. <laughs> the governance is so confusing, Simon. Volkswagen owns 75% of the shares, so they spun out 25% of the company uh, for the IPO. Porsche SE is the entity that owns this and Volkswagen. And so th- that's another layer of, of complication. And then there's the Porsche family office, which owns a bunch of all of the above. I need to dig more into that. The pref stack is confusing. And then on the 25% IPO, like I think like around 7.5% of it was bought by the Qatar uh, investment funds and Abu Dhabi investment funds. So, you know, perfect ESG written all over this. And so uh, the rest of the IPO is given to common shareholders. Not to mention Volkswagen did one of the most egregious and largest corporate frauds ever uh, with their emissions scandal uh, in 2018 with their diesel cars. Truly, truly one of the most egregious, corrupt executive decisions ever. And this cost them over $30 billion to date, this this lawsuit. Can you yeah. believe that? That is absurd. Well, and a quick note on that for those wanting to uh, watch something good on that. There is a documentary on Netflix. I think it's part of the Dirty Money series. Dirty Money. Yeah, yeah. that's right. So if you go, I think it's the first for, first season, I think. Uh, it's really good. I think it's like an hour long. And uh, yeah, it's the, the those diesel, those TDIs. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. I had one. It was like my car in university that my parents like were going to give away. And then I like got it. And just, just don't put your head was- at like. In front of the exhaust, that's the only thing. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Uh, huge corporate. So the governance, the share structure, the pref stack, Volkswagen as a company, dude, not off to a good start. Like I, I really don't like the the governance structure and the, and the cap table, if you will. And other, other thing here, Porsche is luxury, but it's not true luxury. And, and for my Porsche fanatics and owners... I'm sorry. I don't mean to, to. It's not. It's not a shot at the brand. It's just that true luxury is a different asset class. 
deliveries compared to Ferrari, okay? Last year, uh, trailing 12 months, Porsche delivered 331,000 cars. Ferrari delivered only 13,000. Average ticket price is, is way higher. And it's so, it's so exclusive that you can't even actually buy one even if you have the money to. They don't care if you have the means to buy a Ferrari. Didn't uh, Justin Bieber get banned from buying because he like painted it a different color or something like that? Yeah. Correct. If when you buy a Ferrari, <laughs> you enter in like a contract of that you're going to be a diligent owner. Take care of it. It's not going to be left in public parking lots. It is um, not going to be repainted. There is a long list of things that make sure that it is kept true to the Ferrari brand. And they don't care how much money Justin Bieber has. They'll never sell him another one ever again. And they've been true to this the entire time. So it is actual true luxury. Like, Simone, if I have $100 million, I can't even go buy a Ferrari right now. First of all, the current owners of Ferrari... As soon as they you know how know how many deliveries they're going to make for that year, almost all of them are already scooped up by existing owners and collectors. They have first yeah. dibs. So if you already yeah. have a Ferrari, you can get another one. And you know, it's ultra exclusive, dude. It's really hard to get one. And the way I, I see, and I'll say Porsche because that's all, like, that's the way yeah, I fine, said it. And, that's all good. And uh, Brad, you can text me if, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if it's... Uh, if it's Brad's uh, loving this episode yeah, right now, by yeah, the way. Yeah. The way I see Porsche is a bit like kind of an in-between, right? So I think the way I kind of think about car brands is you have your, like, normal car brand so in this case would be volkswagen then you have the higher end more luxury which would be audi and then i feel like porsche is like one step above audi but below uh ferrari it's kind of that in between maybe the three out of four kind of echelons if you put it that way that's exactly right and 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 the price point reflects exactly what you're talking about it's like more luxury than mercedes audi bmw but it's not like exclusive like true luxury, like um, these, and true luxury is, is beyond a price point. It's it's literally like we decide as the owners of this who gets to buy. Yeah, our yeah. our exclusive club. Yeah, that's true luxury beyond a price ticket, and you can see that in the gross margins. Gross margins of Ferrari are almost double. A fifty percent gross margins on these cars. Porsche's great gross margins for the automakers at high 20%. And so where I'm going with this is you'll never you've never seen me and never really excited to buy a car stock ever. Ever on this podcast I I I bash them all the time. But this is me just this is again not saying I'm going to buy the stock or anything. This is this is a watch list name. But going through like where there might be opportunity. Like where is there's huge discrepancy? Ferrari's trading like I have to check. It's like 70 times, dude. It's absurd. Like it's a very expensive stock. So shifting gears, I think the stock is objectively cheap at total uh, at today's multiples. Total deliveries grew at almost 10% in the trailing 12 months. It is a steady grower. It's one of the three, one of the few automakers that is a steady grower. Uh, of course, it's a cyclical business, but it is a steady grower. It's generating $5 billion in free cash flow, guiding up a little bit uh, through 2024 and 2025. The good news is people love these cars. People love Porsches. I love Porsches. The models are classic. The 911 is a true classic design. It remains true decades later. later. I believe an incredibly durable brand with pricing power. It has cult-like ownership group. 
especially in the 911 category and the classic models. My dad, for instance, Simon just mentioned Brad. Brad, my dad, is a Porsche fanatic. He, he goes to these meetups. He's gone to Germany and done all the tours uh, in Stuttgart. He's done, you know, every museum you can possibly think of. He cleans his classic Porsche with a toothbrush uh, on Saturday mornings. Like, it, it's very cool because the people in this, he's not alone, have a real passion for the engineering and everything surrounding the brand. Like, You know what it makes a- me think about is, like, you remember the Friends episode about Joey? who has like who um pretends like he has a Porsche and buys like a like a jacket. I don't know if you saw it. And basically like he he thinks like he's pretending that this like car parked is like his own Porsche. So he's like, oh taking care of it. And then the owner actually comes and grabs the car. Grabs so the car. Builds, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So he builds like a silhouette with boxes puts a tarp over it and <laughs> says that it's actually a Porsche and he has all he's all decked out in the gear until like I think someone's like throwing a football and lands on the car and then all the boxes yeah <laughs> boxes reveal all themselves over. yeah oh uh, that's that's hilarious I haven't seen that but uh, dude it's that's exactly right though it's a brand people adore they it's sought after. You know, it's not cheap, uh, you know, price point, but it's not also like egregious. And the brand is enduring in the fact that they've kept the cars looking the same brand and look and feel and emotion across like, you know, through the years. I have your Porsche deliveries by model. Uh, you can stack these up on FinChat really easily. So these are Taycan, Panamera, McCann, Cayenne, 911, and the 17... 17- 718 models, which includes Boxster and Cayman. So those are the models that they sell today, and that's how they group their models. And Porsche is an SUV company. Do not get it twisted. Yes, they sell a lot of 911s. They're selling like 45,000 a year, but they're selling like 200,000 SUVs in the Cayenne and the McCann models. I personally think that the electric vehicle SUVs are going to be a hit product uh, looking forward. I That's the car I want because, yeah, I'm a kind of an SUV guy going up to the cottage, going to golf. That's like the only reason I use a car. I think I'm gonna, I want to buy an electric vehicle Cayenne when these release. When comp to Mercedes, you have similar multiples, both at like seven times EV to EBITDA, but Porsche is actually growing. Mercedes top line sales is declining. A lot of these automakers, dude, they have like no growth left to squeeze out of the business. Porsche has an obsessive customer base, a much better margin profile, like double and so on and so forth and so on and so forth. So it's not Ferrari, but it's way better than these automakers and trading at the same multiples. Maybe because you can only buy it on the German stock exchange, maybe because the governance is confusing. There's a long list of reasons why, but it's it's certainly objectively cheap. So my question to you and my question to the audience and the question to myself is this an opportunity or is this another automaker value trap where I'm going to be glad that I passed on it, uh, you know, five, 10 years down the line? I, I think investors can probably do quite well with the stock from here, even though, yes, it, it's not a typical business I'd like. No, I don't think it's a super, super wide moat, but I think it's a super, super impressive brand that is going to stand the test of time when it comes to brand. 
Yeah. No, I think, I mean, I, I think the brand is is a really good brand. I think I agree with you there. I'm going to stick with the railway to transport the Porsche from east to west. <laughs> I'm going to stick with the railway for that. You're probably smart about that. <laughs> no, I think it's a good one. I mean, I know, I think they went public... Volkswagen sent them public what in 2022 so they haven't been um yeah uh, training for that long yeah newer listing so no I mean there's a lot to like and like I said it'll be interesting just uh to see how it evolves in the next few years especially for you know again it comes down to the macroeconomic environment geopolitical like if that will have an impact on this kind of business I know for example like Chinese people love their German luxury cars over the last decade whether that continues uh into the future that'll be I I just get really fascinated with that kind of stuff yeah yeah, exactly. So for those who want to, to look up the name on FinChat, type in P911, P911. That is the ticker. on the. You'll see the little German flag, and it's basically the initials and title of the original founder of Ferdinand Porsche. Uh, you can look it up there. All right, let's talk about uh, the big bad, the big bad blo- BlackRock. Yeah, the company owns the world, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll see all those TikToks that are horribly misunderstood. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So BlackRock. So for those who are pretty new for BlackRock, I, if you've ever seen an ETF for iShares, uh, this is a BlackRock ETF. And since they're an asset manager, I think it's really to, important to look at some of those numbers. So as of December 31st, 2023, they had $10 trillion in asset under management. This makes them the largest asset manager in the world. Uh, they cater pretty much to any type of investor here. So whether it's institutional, retail, or ETF. They do break it down. I do encourage people that would be interested in the business to uh, just have a look at their uh, investor slide decks. They have some really good information. In terms of client types, in terms of asset under management, it's 56% institutional, 9% retail, and 35% ETF. Now, the ETF part will probably be a mix of institutional and retail, so keep that in mind, and that's for their asset under management. And in terms of region, uh, it's usually in terms of asset and management under management, AUM, it's uh, 67% in the Americas, Europe, uh, Middle East and Africa, 25% and Asia Pacific, 8%. So there is some diversification there. But of course, the US is the most important market in the world. And that's reflected there. BlackRock gets most of its revenues from fees charge. Although their fees are quite low on index ETF, they do have some higher fees for other types of products. For the most part, they do well uh, because of volume. Three quarters of their revenues are base fees, which are administration fees and investment advisory fees. So that's 74%. And then they also get uh, revenue from securities lending, performance fees, technology services, distribution fees, and advisory and other revenue. Now, they generate tons of free cash flow. I mean, it's been like just up and to the right mostly for uh, free cash flow per share as uh, joint TCI listeners can see. So it's been, you know, there is some cyclicality to it because if you think about it, 
asset under management, if there is a market pullback, the value of those assets under management will come down. And obviously that will impact their fees. If there is a sudden flight of capital away from assets that are owned by BlackRock, clearly that would have you know, an impact on the fees that they generate as well. But the valuation is actually pretty, I wouldn't say it's the most attractive it's been, but I think it's pretty reasonable in terms of what it's been historically. It's kind of in the norm. I wouldn't say it's cheap or high uh, by any means, but I think it's definitely interesting. Do you agree with that in terms of valuation? This is a name where, okay, so what's it trading at today? You have it here on the screen, uh, 30... 31 times yeah exactly 31, 31 times, times for, a PE yeah. and then uh yeah know, it's a little 31. elevated off the median yeah. <laughs> but it's it's not it's not it's not crazy you know it, it, it's one of those names where it's the ultimate large cap stalwart you know where it's not gonna be cheap it's probably gonna rarely trade very cheaply it gives you the odd opportunity as the market draws down it has given you the odd opportunity it feels like slightly above fair value but most large caps of quality are slightly above fair value which is in itself kind of a cringy statement but i don't think it's that i don't think it's overstretched or anything no, no, exactly. And uh, yeah, and to specify, it's around 32 uh, price of free cash flow and then 21 in terms of price to earnings. So definitely, like you said, pretty reasonable, I would say, historically for BlackRock. And what I like about BlackRock is it's not afraid to get into new spaces. And obviously, if you've been living under a rock, no pun intended, but there's been the uh, spot Bitcoin ETF uh, that launched and BlackRock was definitely center stage for that. So they are already the top dog in terms of asset under management. So AUM for the spot Bitcoin ETF. When you exclude GBTC, the reason why you want to exclude GBTC is because GBTC was a close-ended fund that got converted to an ETF on January 11th when Spot Bitcoin ETF launched after the SEC approved it the day before, and GBTC had close to 30 billion in AUM. Now that's been significantly down, and clearly back BlackRock is still behind. But you know, I think they'll slowly claw that market share because for a lot of GBTC holders, is there staying in that fund because there's tax consequences if they do sell because they're selling they're sitting on profits and gbtc is also charging 1.5 percent of fees versus blackrock which i think it's is is around 20 basis points so i think it's just a matter of time that they'll you'll actually see that money flowing to a blackrock or fidelity or any of the other spot bitcoin etfs that offer better fees but blackrock is definitely the number one when you exclude that because obviously GBTC had a bit of a head start here. What's the ticker for the BlackRock one? Ibit. Ibit. Okay. Yeah, I think I it's Van around- Eck, I know Van Eck launched theirs and it's HODL. <laughs> yeah, and there's uh, yeah, there's some good one out there. And I mean, BlackRock has had $5.7 billion in AUM in IBIT since the launch in five weeks. And apparently, according to Bloomberg, this is in the top 0.1% of ETF launches of all time. So it's... I think, needless to say, it's a pretty successful What launch. a hilarious headline from Bloomberg. This is in the top 0.1% of launches. It's like, yeah. um, okay. It's pretty like, good. Yeah. Like, how many launches got any fun flows at all? Like, I don't think those are in the top 
99.9. Well, they they were comparing it to like 5,000 uh, launches. But I, obviously, this was a whole asset class. So it, it's a bit different context. But still, all that to say, it's pretty successful. And I do have some mixed feelings here because I first owned Bitcoin in 2013, although got rug pulled by a scammy exchange. And then I bought back in 2018. And I obviously, I believe in the technology for Bitcoin itself. And BlackRock having so much control over a large swath of Bitcoin is definitely worrying from a decentralization perspective. But I digress. That's not the point here. But what I'm saying here is for those who are maybe not as open to Bitcoin or even skeptical, BlackRock is actually a pretty good way to get some exposure to that space while still mostly getting exposed to the traditional financial system. Even if you don't buy the uh, BlackRock iBit ETF, just owning the stock will give you some exposure to that. So I think it's definitely an interesting, you know, viewpoint from that perspective because even if you're not really interested in bitcoin and cryptocurrencies i think it's probably a good thing to have some kind of exposure and blackrock does offer that because they they've been dipping their toe into the space and one of the things that i'll give props to uh, larry fink is that He's been he's made a kind of 180 fully on Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, and he's actually been pretty outspoken about the potential for tokenization for financial assets. He went on, I think it was CNBC about like a month and a half ago, two months ago, right around the time that the Bitcoin ETF launched. And tokenizing a stock means that you put shares on the blockchain. Typically, the token representing the shares would be backed one for one by shares of the company. If we take a stock, for example, and the shares would be held by a custodian and the token would be traded on a blockchain whether it's a public blockchain like ethereum or bitcoin or a private one and the main advantage here is that these token representing a share would eliminate settling time which is one of the biggest problems with our financial system so if you're new to investing what happens is let's say i buy a share of microsoft so i buy it today well, it will typically take two days after the trade is done to be settled. And that's why you'll often see T plus two. So that's the trade plus two. And having a tokenized system would essentially have the trade settle within a matter of minutes at most. And that's a big, big advantage, especially if you're thinking, uh, you know, I know we have some dividend investors, right? You have the ex-dividend date and all that to, to keep in mind. And you have to own the stock by a certain day to be able to get the dividend well oftentimes sometimes people will kind of buy it on the uh kind of the date of record thinking that they're good but it's actually two days before that because if they buy it on the date of record the trade won't be settled for another two days and they won't be the holder of record for the dividend so that is one of the the potential efficiency that it would bring. And speaking of dividends, they have a growing dividend that currently yields 2.5%. In terms of concerns, I mean, the main concern is to me the cyclical nature of the business. Obviously, I mentioned it. If there's a market downturn, that's going to lower the AUM. And of course, there's going to be lower fees collected on that. Or if there's a big wave of selling and investors are getting out of the uh, type of products that BlackRock is offering that would also impact them. And of course, there could be some potential disruption uh, with an innovation that uh, BlackRock may not see coming. So that's another kind of uh, concern in terms of, of this company and owning it or not. 
I don't know too much about tokenization of assets. I think I'm a little more more skeptical than, than you are. But if I can do my Norbert's Gambit in the same day and not have to wait for T plus two and then <laughs> T plus two again, when you do Norbert's Gambit, since you have to do two trades, it's actually T plus four uh, and you got to wait and do that whole process. So if I can do that in one swift uh, brokerage session, hey, <laughs> whatever you got to do, Larry Fink, uh, yeah, whatever yeah. you got to do, pal, <laughs> I'm good well, with it. Yeah, I mean, I think he was in Davos for that, the World Economic Forum. That's when... The uh, World Hypocrite Forum? The World Hypocrite Forum? Yeah, yeah, that's it. And uh, it was just really interesting because they were asking him about the Bitcoin ETF. And then they asked him about the Spot Bitcoin Ethereum ETF, which BlackRock has an application for. And he didn't want to talk about that really, but he diverted the conversation to tokenization and just went on for minutes about talking about tokenization. So that's why I thought it was just good to include that here. But I mean, all that to say is they seem to be more open-minded than some of their counterparts, <clears throat> Jamie Dimon. But uh, no, so, 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 <laughs> and I think that's a, that's a positive. Whatever you think about BlackRock, obviously I have my reservation too, but um, it's not a company I'm looking to buy, but I think you could own a lot worse things in the stock market than owning a BlackRock. So... The ETF business has been a real winner. I mean, when they first started reporting it in the fiscal of 2016, it was doing three and a half billion in revenue. Now it's almost six billion. It peaked six billion in 2021, and and it's been solid through like a market of 2022, which was rough for equities. Fund flows and fees in this business were still great, so they're still capturing. Uh, that I've always said the asset management business, if you can design a business, it's one of the best businesses uh, to get like software like margins and software like recurring revenue. It's, it's really quite, quite amazing. The question really is just how commoditized is the service that they're offering now become? I think that that's a real kind of concern or like hole yeah, no, in, the bull, in, mm-hmm. in the bull thesis is around how commoditized this business has become. Of course, they're gigantic and of course, they're going to be able to do things that others can't. But when I look for an asset manager, I'm looking for an actual edge. Usually those are coming in the form of like private equity style management, whether it's like a constellation who has like their tentacles into everything or it's like a Brookfield because they're actual owners and operators of these infrastructure assets and and have access to very scarce infrastructure assets, like a hydro dam, for instance, is Mm -hmm. much more Lindy because you can't build a hydro dam on a hydro dam. Like there's only one, there's only so much water power available. And so that's just like a core example of if I want to own the asset manager, I want them to also have some non-commoditized edge. I still think you'll do quite well with BlackRock, but that's just something to think about if you were to, to own the name. No, no, that's definitely, uh, that's fair. Yeah, I think where they get is definitely on the volume, but that could, you know, that's right. that may not always be there. Yeah, but at least, I mean, they have all different kinds of assets available for people. So, you know, if equities uh, become unfavorable, people want fixed income alternatives, like BlackRock's got you It's a one-stop bait. shop. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's exactly. the advantage. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. All right, this one's interesting. I don't, do you see the name I picked to round us out today? Yeah, that one you'll uh, have to do a lot of convincing. I just saw the name. I'm like, oh boy. <laughs> T 
Dude, it's it's not convincing. I I, I wanted to kind of pre- I preface at the beginning of the show. I I I don't know if I did well enough. Uh, first of all, of course, none of this investment advice. These are not names we own or or no. chomping at the bit to own. Like I just talked about an automaker. It's it's turning over rocks where there might be opportunity or maybe not. But it, it's my job to turn over rocks. And so I'm sharing that information here on the podcast. Maybe they'll be leveraged by a, by a private equity fund. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. When, when are they get when's Okay. I don't want to, you know, okay. steal yeah, the thunder yeah, of here. But, but, but on that note, when is Zuck? What they should, Zuck should have, they should have just sold this to Zuck a long time ago. But anyways, Zuck's not allowed to do any acquisitions though, because, uh, you know, Congress hates the guy. All right. Snapchat. Ticker snap. Now this one's off. Uh, again, not my style of business, uh, not profitable. List goes on and on and on about how I could dunk this stock. It's been terrible governance a too. Yeah, <laughs> clown car. It's been a clown car. They have treated shareholders like trash and continue to have terrible performance. I'm wondering if I'm even off my rocker looking at this one live here on the podcast because it's been such a dumpster fire. Snapchat stock has been a wild ride. They IPO'd in. Tw- uh, in 2017 for $27. In 2021, the stock went nuclear to 83 bucks. Pinterest and Snapchat were like going mental. Everything ad dollars was going mental. And now it's on a huge drawdown to $11. It's been an absolute roller coaster. They reported their Q4 uh, earlier this month, and it was rough for the stock. I think it was down like 30-odd, 40%. And base, investors are basically saying, What's it going to take? What's going to give? You know, like something's got to give. Leverage buyout. (laughs) The cost structure is out of whack. Operating income was negative $1.4 billion for the year. It's growing faster than top line. Every other tech company's cutting spend, uh, you know, getting their SG&A costs under control. And Spiegel's just out here wilding out. And so investors are like, hey, can you just be like like Zuckerberg instead? You know, go on the air, go on the Q4 and call it the year of efficiency. Can you please? Like what's got to give here? Now, first in the, in the short term, the obvious things here is sales growth is stalling. Guidance was weak. The reason investors are just frustrated with the stock, okay? All right, I've I've started with the bad news. I've started with the clown card that is Snapchat. But, here's the but, active users for a large-scale platform, I don't know if there's anything better than Snapchat today. See what, just share the doc, because I, I got the stacked group, oh, yeah. I got the stacked <laughs> bar charts that show average uh, active users for North America, for Europe, and rest of world. That has grown from 2014 at 71 million to 414 million. So if you just scroll down, you'll see the stacked bar made on FinCheck. There you go. Here's the user growth. Everything you know about Snapchat aside, what do you think about this this chart? What, what, do you th- what, what comes to mind here? Yeah, I mean, the chart is uh, doing well. Like it went from... 
what it's in millions right yeah so yeah. it went from 71 in 2014 to 414 in 2023 and then as of their latest quarter yeah the latest yeah. or latest year i guess you have right yeah yeah I guess, but we yeah. it's it's yeah. time yeah. yeah it's time yeah. that's right and yeah. it was 375 last year 319 the year before so basically it's been steadily growing with the exception of 2017 to 2018 and and it's not like oh it was doing great in the mid 2010s like it it's been rocking since 2018 like the the user growth has been rocking it's grown from 186 million to 414 the rest of world segment has exploded it's gone from basically 0 to 2 over 200 million active users the north american uh segment is not going as fast, but it's been a really sticky initial cohort, and Europe's been rocking as well, about to hit 100 million actives. And a similar story, if you scroll down, this is the quarterly number. This ticks up like a SaaS company. If you keep scrolling down, this ticks up like a SaaS company. It's not that chunky. I am shocked by the user growth of Snapchat. The Gen Z and the Gen Alpha kids love it. That's all they use to communicate. I kid you not. It's absolutely absurd. For people who have like teen kids, they'll know that they're Snapchat and their friends. They don't even use iMessage. They don't use WhatsApp. They Snapchat, uh, whether the text or they send each other photos, and they have like thousand day long snap streaks. It's out of control. So average revenue per user is back up to $3.30 globally and back up to $9 in North America. For context, you're looking at like close to $50 for that that segment uh, for, for Facebook. And that's not even the bull thesis here because it's really hard to be like, oh, they can get it as high as Facebook. No, Facebook is a unicorn in terms of average revenue per user. It's it's out of this world. It's so good. And yeah. their ads platform has better metrics than anyone It gets its tentacle and sucks you in and then you're never going to get a... <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, of course, there's room to grow at an ARPU of only $9 in North America, $3.30 globally. But I'm not saying it's going to all of a sudden touch 50 and be you know uh, meta numbers. So I talked about the Gen Z, the Gen Alpha kids. They love it. Heck, I use it. Me and my buddies, we have a Snapchat group. Uh, we're in our late 20s to early 30s using this thing. I actually think it's hilarious and, and literally one of my favorite apps because it's actually social. Uh, you know, other apps they call social media are like unsocial media. Like it's ironic, really. Like doom scrolling videos of, uh, made by other people on how to bake sourdough is not social at all. In fact, it's unsocial media. This is actually collaboration with your friends. The problem with with Snapchat is they've tried to monetize this other part of the app, which is like the explore feed, which is like watching, you know, Gen Z TikTokers, you know, vlog their weekend. It's really not that engaging for one. I don't know if they have a lot of creators on it. I don't know how those creators are getting compensated. And the ads platform sucks. I've heard, I've talked to insiders uh, and marketers. They've said that the the ads platform yeah, sure, if you're specifically catering to that niche, it's good, but like you can go find them on Instagram for less cost and better attribution. So like it's yeah. a it's a tough sell to marketers, right? So what gives? 
despite this everything that you know that they're doing the user growth is one of the most impressive of all large scale applications today the user base is extremely sticky the young kids love it people like me even love it uh, i've had the app for like since high school you know like long long time and so what's the turnaround there's no more leash left spiegel like you know like you're in the 7th inning and you just threw another home run to the to the dh like there's no leash left to give a, a, a baseball analogy and it's like the turnaround or mature maturation that investors have been looking for with this company that never happened so it's like you're waiting for your degenerate friend to finally grow up and become an adult next thing you know they're 37 you know, life comes at you pretty fast. Next thing you know, you're 37 years old. It's like me, 17 years old in high school. My friends are growing beards. And I'm like, puberty's going to come for me eventually too, right? I was a late bloomer, don't you worry. What's going to give? Like, what's the catalyst here? When are they going to like mature as a company? And so it's in a weird place as a public company. I don't know what to think. The user growth in, is sticky undeniably great at this point, way better than a Pinterest or anything like that. The bear case here is it's run like a clown car in perpetuity. Yeah. The bear case yeah. here is they <laughs> never figure out management of the cost structure. They never get profitable. But perhaps today's price reflects that. It's 18 billion in market cap, three and a half billion in cash on the balance sheet. Like there is a way to make a shit ton of money on Snapchat. There is, there is a way. You just have to believe that there's going to be some sort of turnaround on the clown car that is management. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe Spiegel takes steps down to see you. someone comes in there and you know, matures this company up. I don't, I don't know what that answer is. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the other issues I pulled that up from uh, Finchat.io is so you have two bars. So you have the total shares outstanding and then you also have the repurchase of common shares and they essentially have been issuing a lot of stock i'm assuming it's all stock-based compensation and then trying to compensate that with buying back shares which is you know not a great use of capital in my book and it would look a lot worse if they weren't buying back shares in terms of total outstanding shares but i know i knew that was an issue with uh, snapchat is they tend to have a lot of stock-based compensation and I suspected that they were buying a decent amount of shares and we see the shares increase steadily when they're not repurchasing shares and then it kind of stabilizes when they're repurchasing shares, which obvious, obviously kind of you can put, you know, two and two together. Yeah, it's a tech company at their stage. I expect stock-based compensation. Stock-based compensation has kind of been leveled off since 2019. A little bit. Uh, you know, it, it has increased. They did spend that billion dollars you're talking about there in 2022 to buy back some stock. Very, very kind of silly move in my mind. Maybe they think the stock was cheap. Maybe they think it's really cheap here. I don't know. But you know how you stop issuing more stock? You right-size the cost structure. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. Know? Like, I get it. There's going to be stock-based compensation part of this story for a little longer. I get that. And, and, I, and I actually think that that's the right move to do here. Uh, getting tech talent is very difficult in this day and age for these large tech companies. You know, I don't know if they can pay Facebook, Microsoft salaries, and they have to do some sort of SBC. But there is a way amongst 
all of this that they figure it out. I don't know. Like, <laughs> maybe, right? Like, I don't know. That's why it's on the watch list. They're sitting on a gold mine. And maybe, another catalyst to mention here, maybe as their user base of the Gen Z and Gen Alpha kids that are messaging each other all day long drive ARPU up. These are not high ARPU users at the moment because, you know, unless they get their parents' credit card, they're not buying stuff and, and having actual, like, checkouts, which drive the, the, the marketing platform to really work and drive yeah. up those numbers. Maybe that they're sitting on a gold mine. Like, I, it's undeniable. I do yeah. believe that they're sitting on a gold mine. And ARPU is just average uh, revenue yes, per sir. user, in case uh, people weren't sure. And, you know, I think they're... I mean, there's potential there, but it's hard for me to uh, know if they can fulfill that with, it's not like they've been public for a year, right? Like it's been some time, the platform has been there. At this point, I'd expect them to be profitable on a regular basis, which they have failed to do, even when it was ripe. Like basically, they should have had like 2021, 2022. Like these should have been like years where profitability would have increased. I think one of the years they were profitable. It's just I have a hard time saying that they'll be able to to improve on that, especially if there's a tougher economic environment. Advertisers will just go where their ad spend money brings them the most value. And clearly right now it's not it's not snap. That's right. If two things can happen. Okay, I'm not saying that they will. And, and and I'm actually very pessimistic that they will. Okay. With that framing in mind. <laughs> That's the best shot stock pitch ever. Like, you know, the- Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Hey, by the way, this thing's a shit show clown dumpster fire. But hey, if two things can happen, if ARPU can can increase meaningfully, meaning that they improve the product on the ads platform, or figure out monetization that neither of us are gonna be able to brainstorm on this podcast. If, if, if whatever they do, those two avenues, whether it's ads or other services, ARPU goes up. And two, the operating expenses and the SGNA come down. I don't, what are they spending money on? I don't know. Like, I really don't know. So if those two things can happen, you will very likely make a ton of money on Snapchat. Like, I I, be, I truly believe that here. We're at a, at a point here. I'm calling my shot here in February 2020. You're either going to continue to have a dumpster fire management team or you make a ton of money on the stock. Like one of the, it's, I believe it's binary at this point. So investment thesis. So you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so you're saying there's a chance on this dumpster. Dude, I, you know what I mean though? Like, Oh, I know what you, you mean. You can't yeah. not look at that user count and think, huh, like something's here. There's been very few apps that have had this kind of enduring stickiness, let alone growth at this stage. Very few apps. Just a few in history. Oh, you're right. Yeah. I can't argue with that. That's for sure. Okay. Well, let's wrap this up. Thanks for listening to the pod, guys. That's four stocks on our watch list presented by our friends at EQ Bank. I personally really like doing this style of yeah. uh, episode. We get easily carried away with these kind of episodes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're already in over an hour here. But dude, it's it's helpful. It's like even in a self-serving way, I'm sure the listeners get a lot of it too, but it's helpful to kind of talk through these things live. As you can see me trying to chew on Snapchat. Like 
opportunity or am i an idiot you know tbd here and that's why it's on your watch list it's so important to chew on these things as not a shareholder yeah yeah (laughs) you know what i mean you chew on these things while they're on your watch list you don't chew on you don't buy the stock and then chew on them like that's a sure way to over trade and a sure way to lose money from my view yeah no definitely well said Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a few days. All the data provided today is on finchat.io. Finchat.io. You can get 15% off with code TCI. It's the quickest. This research email would have taken us three to five times longer, in my view, if we weren't able to pull up these stats very quickly. So uh, we did that on Finchat. Use code TCI for 15% off. We will see you in a few days. We are here on the podcast Mondays and Thursdays. Every single week, show goes on. If you can give us a five star on Apple Podcasts, you can leave us a nice little review there. Give us a you know boosted boost of dopamine. And then if you're on Spotify, you can press that follow button. It costs you nothing and gives us a lot of value. So uh, that's all we ask. Thank you so much. We'll see you soon. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.